introduction to the book of Psalms, the uniqueness of the character of King David in writing the book of Psalms, the particular uniqueness of all of the Psalms, and so on and so forth. And what we're going to begin doing this week and follow through for the rest of the series is that each week I will select a primary psalm or psalms that have commonly been singled out as very special ones, psalms that have been singled out to be said either in our literature of Shabbos or during the week or in times of crisis and so on and so forth. And we'll take one psalm each week and we'll try to, try to delve into its meaning and how it relates to us and why it has such prominence amongst the psalms. The logical place to begin this evening, the most logical place to begin this evening is in the first psalm. What we do after the first psalm and how much we skip around after that, you're, you can imagine yourselves. But it's logical to start with the first psalm. The commentaries say that the first psalm has some very, very special material in it and that's why when King David decided on putting together the book of Psalms, he chose that this should be the opening chapter. Anybody that ever wrote a book or attempted writing a book knows that the opening chapter is a very important one. And therefore we're going to learn this first, this first chapter of Psalms for tonight. Now, there is one thing that I failed to mention last week in the introduction which is extremely relevant in understanding this chapter and all other chapters. We spoke last week, one idea that we spoke about last week was the, was the idea that there were many things that took place in King David's life. Some of them were very joyous, some of them were very tragic. And in every situation that King David found himself in, he had the ability of sharing those events with God, opening up to God in those events, and hence there wasn't any event in his life that in any way isolated him from God, but to the contrary was a springboard in King David's life to bring him that much closer to God. This is something that we spoke about. So the way that we most probably understood that piece of information is, listen, every person has different things in their lives and uh, some of them are pleasant and some of them are unpleasant and learning how to bring them all before God and sharing them all and not becoming distracted and isolated is is a very a very normal thing to hold on to faith is is a challenge of life and etc cetera, etc cetera. however and this hasidic literature teaches us a lot about that in every circumstance and I'll just take a hypothetical situation in every circumstance that is difficult for a person and has the danger of possibly isolating the person from god in, in every such situation, there are two parts. Okay, there are two parts. One part of it, 
Okay, one part of it is the event itself. Okay, the the event itself. The event is a di- for instance for a, a difficult one. So I have very particular challenges now. Why did God do it to me? For what reason? Did I deserve it? What's the meaning of it? What can I learn from it? In other words, it's very very particular. Okay, it's very very particular to 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 what has taken place. And now I ask the questions and either I have answers or I don't have answers and I move and I move along with or without answers towards God or away from God in my ability to answer or not answer those questions. However, there's a second dimension. There's a second dimension to every everything that happens to us. The second dimension of everything that happens to us is like this. There is a particular challenge in everything that happens, but there is a general but much more powerful challenge in everything that happens to us. What do I mean? What I mean is like this. The negative inclination, the negative inclination seeks to find a way to get into us that we should compromise ourselves and that we should be less than what we're supposed to be or become less than we have the potential to be. That's the nature of the negative inclination. And the negative inclination petitions us to do many, many things. However, the negative inclination knows full well that the best time to petition man to compromise himself is when he's down and out or confused or dismayed or frustrated about something that has happened. So in every, in every event which presents a challenge, there's a specific challenge that the event produces because I want to be able to interpret the event and be able to be reconciled and hold on to my relationship with God with the event or in spite of the event. But that's particular where I want to know why and where and how come and so on and so forth. But then there is a much more general challenge in everything that happens to us in life. Am I going to allow the things that happen to me in life to make me vulnerable to the general pursuit of negative inclination that usually tries to petition man when he's the lowest? And then then you can have something coming out of left field that is totally unrelated to the crisis or the tragedy that you've gone through. But because you've been hit low, Uh, or you are low because of the event that occurred, now you open yourself up to a whole new set of challenge where the negative inclination says, this is the guy that I want to hit tonight because he's so low and so frustrated or so sad or so disappointed, I can hit him with most probably anything in my bag of tricks and I'll most probably buy anything. So aside of the particular challenge of defining why something happened, there becomes an overall challenge where the person becomes vulnerable. Now, recognizing this, what it really means is that every challenge that King David had was a very personal one that needed a personal interpretation. But beyond the personal interpretation, King David had to pour energy into the recognition that he, that he would be vulnerable if he wouldn't be in control of the situation. So whatever happened to him, 
And however well he did in understanding why and when it happened to him, that was only part of the energy. But King David knew that after every event that happened to him, there could very well be an onslaught of the negative inclination that would try to take an advantage in that moment of confusion, in that moment of crisis. And therefore, each time that King David rose above the crisis, he rose above the crisis in the sense of the particular challenge that the crisis presented, but in a more general sense, a much greater, a much greater challenge not to fall to the entire spectrum of the negative inclination. This is so, so important in life because the fact that we want to legitimately understand or have some meaning in the things that happen to us is a perfectly acceptable route to go. And it's a, a perfectly legitimate need to look to find answers. Right? That's perfectly right. A person's not necessarily in a dangerous spot there. However, however, very often the greatest damage that comes out of a tragedy and a crisis is not necessarily in the interpretation of the tragedy and the crisis, but all the other junk that ganves itself in in the midst of my confusion. And therefore, therefore, the stuff that, you know, that just robs itself in and grabs a hold of me, well, how is it related? Does it answer anything? Does it make anything better? No. But that's where, when he comes, because he knows that then there's an open door. Then he knows that the person is most vulnerable. And therefore, therefore, though the, these are all personal challenges and examples of personal challenges, but each time that King David rose to the challenge, it doesn't necessarily mean that he had all the answers. But one thing he did do, he rose to the challenge of not allowing God to become less in his life, but he bonded with God and didn't allow what would have been a natural in for the negative inclination to come in. And this is something that man so desperately needs because so often, whatever the loss, whatever the tragedy, whatever the crisis is that comes to man, man doesn't want to admit it, but very often he multiplies the crisis and he multiplies the tragedy by the way that he reacts to it by letting in the negativity that he would never ever let in and would never allow himself to compromise. So I'm not saying that people don't have tsaris, that people don't have troubles and they don't have hurts and they don't have pains. But depending upon how we confront it, we can keep it in check, we can keep it within the parameters within which it's taken place, or we can let it come to a place where we lose a part of ourselves that wasn't necessary to lose. And what the Tehillim represents is King David saying to God, whatever you do to me, I'm not going to allow it to lose myself and to make the loss and the pain and the tragedy greater than the parameters of what has taken place. <clears throat> now, one of those examples, and with this we will begin the first chapter of Tehillim, one of those examples, one of those examples is the big question that people ask. Why do the innocent people suffer? And why is it that the wicked prosper? This is a, a major question and people ask it on philosophical levels and they ask it on emotional levels. And very often 
in the, in the inability to figure out the answers and to feel that one has not been dealt with fairly, one basically can say, to heck with it all. I'm not being dealt with fairly, so I don't have to pay attention to anything, even though deep down I know that there are things that are for me and other things compromise me. And this is one, this is the major subject that King David opens the book of Psalms up with. King David knows full well in his own life that he could have asked that question a hundred times. That there were people that hunted him down and that there were people that rebelled against him and that there were people that wanted to defame his, his legitimate existence on any kind of level, be it physical, be it spiritual. King David certainly, from an emotional place, certainly could have brought himself to the place of saying, to heck with it all. Okay? The world isn't worth a nickel. It's all full of garbage. And what do I need it all for? And to who do I owe anything to? And just forget it all. However, however, King David... And we'll talk about where that strength came from over the entire series. However, King David says that I recognize, I recognize that in reality, in the sum total of things, Ashrei Ha'ish, fortunate is the person that didn't buy into that kind of an argument. Which argument? That since I can't figure out what's happening to me and why it's happening to me, that I will go and I, with an attitude and say to heck with it all and then allow in negativity that isn't even a solution to what my problem is. King David says, fortunate is the person that has the discipline and the stamina of not letting those things in because the person that doesn't let those things into his life to compromise himself, in the end, he will find out that he is the lucky person, he is the fortunate person, and those that seem to be fortunate and lucky in life aren't really the ones. This is basically where King David begins this. Now, what I'm going to do, you don't have the text in front of you, what I'm going to do is like this. I'm going to read the Hebrew text, immediately translate it into simple English, or better yet, simple American, okay, into simple American, and then we'll go back and we'll delve into the deeper meaning of what King David is saying here. King David opens up and he says like this, Ashrei ha'ish, fortunate and praiseworthy is the human being, that did not go, did not follow the path and the counsel of the wicked, and he didn't allow himself to stand in the place of transgression, and he didn't allow himself to sit with people that idle away their time with mockery. He's fortunate just for staying away from those negatives which I've just, just listed out. But he's also fortunate because outside of staying away from negatives, he also became involved and connected to positives. Ki im Hashem he decided that he would dedicate his life and his energies to understanding the will of God as it expresses itself in Torah. And by his dedication, he actually found his place, his niche, his Torah, 
within that larger volume of Torah through a dedication that requires some connection to it by day and by night. And what will be the result of this person? Now, this is all, it, it, it's going to sound, it's, on the first interpretation, it sounds meaningless. And that's why we'll go back and we'll interpret it more. So King David becomes poetic. He's talking about a person, how fortunate he is that he hasn't bought, bought into negativity, even though the circumstances of his life would have said, to heck with it and what difference does it all make. He didn't buy into it, and not only didn't he buy into negativity, but he became involved in, in, positive, in positive things. So King David says, what is the future of this person? He will be like this tree that is planted and is growing by a, a tributary of water. In other words, where there's a tremendous amount of nourishment. So the tree always has what it needs in terms of water. And therefore it gives its fruits in the proper time. And its leaves that protect it will never dry up. And everything that it will produce will be successful. This is what King David says. This is the lot of the person that doesn't buy into negativity. However, but the way of the wicked is nothing like that. Because even though on a provisional basis they seem to be terribly successful, but in the end, they become like the chaff on the top of the, of the harvest that it's connected until the time of the threshing. But by the time of the threshing, it's totally separated and discarded. Alkane, and therefore, because God knows the tremendous difference between the choice that the righteous made and the wicked made, therefore, don't make any bones about it. Lo yakumu rishayim ba-mishpat. In the ultimate judgment of the eternity of soul, the wicked person will not be able to stand. The chatayim and those that have transgressed will not be able to be included and enjoy the same spiritual rewards as the righteous. Why? Because God definitely knows the, the scorecard. And God knows the efforts that went in by the righteous and the lack of efforts or the negative efforts that went in by the one that weren't righteous. And therefore, the derech rishayim that in the end, the way of the wicked will be lost. What is King David saying? Just, if you just hear the spirit of what King David is saying. What is King David saying? You don't see the success. You don't see the benefits. All you see is lots of hard work and unanswered questions and all of that. But what King David is saying on the simplest level is, patience, mister. Just like you plant a tree, it takes time until it produces fruit. But if the conditions are right and it has the right nourishment, it will eventually produce fruit and, every, and everything that you will plant from the original plant will also produce fruit. So too, King David says, goodness produces fruit and wickedness sooner or later becomes spent, loses its energy, loses its koach, loses its force and eventually disappears. What is King David saying? 
Sometimes good things take a long time until they show. And sometimes things show very, very quickly, but they disappear with time. We live in a society where we need everything fast food. We need it very quick. And if it comes very quick, it's good. And if we don't see the fruits right away, by definition, it's a waste of time. What King David is saying is, well, if that's your mental set, you'll never figure out and you'll never be able to resolve and you will never be able to transcend the confusion and the anguish of the question of the tzaddik, the righteous suffering, and the wicked prospering. It's only with the maturity of knowing that sometimes the best things need a time of investment. And the things that are done quickly and without the the proper time given into understanding what's a healthy investment, in the end, it gets lost. This is what King David is saying. On the most simplistic level, this is what he's saying. Now what we're going to do is we're going to go back and we're going to do verse by verse and we'll touch on a lot of important points as we go along. Let's begin at the beginning again. Ashrei ha'ish. The Malbim explains to us, the Malbim is a commentary, a very famous commentary, especially on the prophets and the scripture. The Malbim explains to us that in the Hebrew language there are two words for fortune. One word is osher, and I'm not talking about osher spelled with an ayin, which means richness. I'm talking about osher spelled with an aleph. Osher spelled with an aleph is not richness. Osher spelled with an aleph is fulfillment. That's what it is. Satisfaction and fulfillment. There are two ways of expressing success. One way of expressing it is osher, with the aleph. The other way of expressing it, which I'm sure you've all heard, is hatzlacha, success. That's the closest word in the Hebrew language to the English word success, hatzlacha. I'm sure people have sometimes wished you hatzlacha rabbah, okay, and so on and so forth. That means with success. What's the difference between the two words? So the Malvin explains that the difference between the two words is like this. The word ashrei talks about success in the, in the definition of meaning. meaning. Meaning in life. And that's why the real translation of the word osher is fulfillment. In other words, it's not just talking about an accumulated mass of money or an accumulated mass of pleasure or things like that. What the word osher means, it's the introduction of it is success, but it is success that man has reached a place of enjoying a meaning in life. That's what the word ashrei means. What does the word hatzlacha mean? Hatzlacha means success in any way that it's considered success. It could mean that I came home with $50,000. I could be successful, but I'm not necessarily fulfilled that I can, because I came home with $50,000. So the Malbum continues, and the Malbum says like this. The Malbum says that, that there are... <coughs> There are various areas where a person can be successful in life. 
He can be successful in bodybuilding and everything that's related to his body. He can be successful in the acquisition of possessions. And he can be successful in helping the spiritual dimension of his existence emerge and grow. Now, the Malbum points out that the human being throughout our literature has four ways in which he's referred to. He's referred to as Gever, individual. He's referred to as Enosh. He's referred to as Adam. These are all Hebrew words which refer to man. And then there's Ish. Each one of those, def- each one of those words which describes man is a different level. The lowest level is Enosh. That's the lowest level. You are a human creature, Enosh. Okay? Your definition is, your only distinction is that you look human. Right? But precious little else distinguishes you from the rest of the world. Enosh. Above Enosh, you have Gever. The human being is beginning to stand up for certain things. He's a Gavre. He's a person that stands for certain things. That's a second level. Above that, you have Adam, man, the combination of heaven and earth. And then the highest way of describing the human being is by calling him Ish. Ish is the, is the, the most respected term for the human being. When we refer to anybody that we want to praise, for instance, in the Bible we talk about Moses. How do we say it? Ish Maisha and the individual Maisha Anav Mikaladim. He was the most humble person, the most modest person. So Ish is the highest form. So the Malbum says like this, and this is a very beautiful thing. The Malbum says like this Ashrei Ha Ish. In other words, when is the human being fortunate when he can ascend to the level of addressing the fact that he has a name Ish? That's when he is Osher. It's very possible that he's Hatzlacha as an Enosh, as a Gever, as an Adam. It's very possible that he's successful. But Ashrei, where is man really fortunate and praiseworthy for his fortune? When he can be Ish. When he can reach that level of being Ish. Now, how do you reach the level of Ish? So the Malbum continues and the Malbum says, do you think that you reach the level of being fortunate by bodybuilding and body beauty? No. That doesn't, that's not the uniqueness of Ish. There are some very beautiful animals. There are some very beautiful butterflies. There are a lot of things that are beautiful in the sense of body beauty and body perfection. And on the other hand, the, the, the perfection that comes of being successful in, in physical possessions, that's success, but it's not fulfillment. And ask many people that have found success there. And ask them if success is synonymous with fulfillment. Ashrei ha'ish, if you want to know what the fortune of, for, the true fortune of man is, that he should be called ish, is that he addresses two major issues. What are the two major issues that he addresses? 
which we'll explain in a moment, which basically means I didn't buy into the things that take away and rob from me the time that I need to ascend to the level of Ish. I didn't buy into that stuff. But rather, in not buying into that stuff, I found myself having time to buy into the things that will directly help me find that level of ish, that level of fulfillment within myself. Now, let's continue explaining this. There are three things that are referred to as, thank God I didn't get involved in them. What are they? The counsel of the wicked, the path of the transgressor, and the sitting and talking to the ones that sit and burn time in mockery. These are the three things. Now, there's some very interesting things over here. <clears throat> what does it mean, the counsel of the wicked? What does it mean, the path of the sinner? And what does it mean, the, the congregation of people sitting, idly burning time, mocking individuals? What is that all supposed to mean? So the Radak explains like this. The Radak says, Atzas Rishayim. Let's explain what the two words, the counsel of the wicked. And what is the second term? Derechatayim, the path of the transgressor. There's a very big difference between those two. I'll tell you what the difference is. The first one, the counsel of the wicked, what does that mean? What that means is like this. The person comes up to me and says, hey, listen, I have a shita in life. I have an ideology in life. You know what it's called, the Radak says? Make money and more money and more money and have more vacations and more pleasure and more vacations and more pleasure. And if people get into your way, I'll tell you how to get people out of your way. The counsel of the wicked. In other words, where there is, where you've made up your mind that this is what life is worth living for, and then you, and, and it's a purposeful thing. I make up my mind that this is what I'm going to feel fulfilled in, this is what life is for, etc., etc. That is what's referred to as Atzas Rishayim. Now, this is a phenomenal thing because I don't know if you're all familiar with the Hebrew language, but the word Russia is, is usually used as to depict wickedness. Okay? Now, one wouldn't think that the person that's a little bit misguided and misdirected and believes that it's all at and making lots of money and having a lot of status and a lot, having a lot of possessions and a lot of vacations is wicked. He's misguided, he's wasting his life, but he's not wicked. Okay? However, what the Radak here is saying is that the word that the word that we're using Russian, the English word that's correct for it is not really wicked. That's not really what the word is. But what it really is is that the person has has decided to link himself up to something that is going to nurture a certain part of his being that doesn't address the beauty of the human being. In other words, and let's try to explain this. Let's try to explain this in depth here. 
very often we think that the question of the quality of a human being lies in what he does. What did you do today? What acts did you do today? How did you behave today? So on and so forth. And on a certain level, this is definitely true. I'm never going to say that a person that behaved in an ugly way, okay, has anything to say for himself at the end of the day. And a person that fights himself and acts in a beautiful way certainly has what to say for himself. But that's not the whole story. Why isn't it the whole story? I'll tell you. Because it's very possible for a person to go through a day and go through a life where he does lots of things, okay? But the inside is in a completely different place. His inside is in a completely different place. And I'm saying that for the better and for the worse. What do I mean? The critical question, the critical question of, of living life in a vibrant way doesn't only have to do with the things that I do, but it really has to do with what I've established as being the thing that nurtures my existence. What nurtures me? What gives me pleasure? What gives me fulfillment? What makes me feel at the end of the day like a mensch? What makes me feel like a person? So it's very possible that the things that make me feel like a person are lots of money, lots of vacations, lots of those things. However, I'm also religiously conscious. I have a religious conscience to me. And therefore, through the day, I do the things that I'm required to do religiously. And I try to stay away from the things that I'm not supposed to do. So a person thinks, listen, what's wrong? I did the right things. I stayed away from the wrong things. What are you cricking into my insides and finding out what makes me feel like a mensch at the end of the day? So David Amel, King David says, no, it's not true. The ultimate measure of man reaching the most dignified place of his being is not only that he chooses his actions, but he chooses what it is that ultimately is going to make him feel like a mensch. And then after he chooses what makes him feel like a mensch, he, he determines to himself that his life is not going to not spend time in those things that will make him feel like a mensch. And that's what the Radak is saying. In other words, he's not, go, he's not going to get involved in the things that prevent him from feeling like a mensch. Okay? Now that's a completely different way at, look, at looking at life. Okay? What I'm saying is it's that a person doesn't only have to orient himself that his actions should be correct actions. But he has to ask himself a fundamental question. But what makes me feel fulfilled by the time the day ends? This is what the Radak means when the Radak says, Atzas Rishoyim. What's Atzas Rishoyim? The counsel of the wicked. Don't buy into the argument that you can feel at the end of the day like a mensch just because you made a lot of money today. Don't buy into that. Don't think that that's a place where you can ultimately feel fulfilled. That's the Eitz of a Russia. That's the counsel of a person that's totally misguided. That's what King David is saying. Don't buy into it. That's Atas Rishon. Then King David goes further and King David says, so don't follow 
the ideology that fulfillment comes from those things. That's number one. Number two, What does V'derech HaToyim Lo'yamad mean? He says, A chote is not a person that purposefully chooses negativity. Okay? But he lives the kind of lifestyle that he's always tripping into it. He's always tripping into it. He's always, he's always getting enmeshed into it. So, means that I don't go on a path that is technically kosher, but always has at the end of it the strong probability of making a mistake. So, praiseworthy is the person that doesn't buy into an ideology that says you'll feel like a mensch at the end of the day just by making a buck. And even more fortunate is a person that avoids those kinds of paths that look very kosher, but invariably have mistakes at the end of them. I don't want to go near a path that somehow people always find themselves throwing up their hands and saying, oops, I made a mistake. And I didn't seek the company of people that basically are leitzim. What are leitzim? Leitzim are people that mock. What does that mean, that they mock? That means that they don't really have value. The thing that they get the most enjoyment out of is not a good joke, but how much they can depreciate everything that's around them. That's poison for a person to reach his humanity. Because if a person begins to become attracted to mockery and cynicism, so then everything loses its value. And when everything loses its value, man has no, no value to strive for and nothing to transcend to. So King David says, fortunate is the person. Forget about the good things that a person needs to do. The person is already fortunate if he stays away from these three things. We'll talk about good things. But fortunate is the person that stays away from these three things. Because these three things poison, not necessarily my actions immediately, but what you know what they poison? They poison something much, much deeper. They poison the depth of what will make me feel like a mensch. The counsel of the people that say that fulfillment is in the buck, the, the, the mocking congregation that depreciates everything, and the past that invariably always have mistakes tied up with them. No, 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 God forbid, not on purpose, but full of trappings and full of mistakes. Now, <clears throat> Let me explain something else also here, which is important to explain. Many people think, many people think that in every single action and behavior that man take, does in his world, people think that man stands, stands in a place of total freedom of choice and every decision that he makes is totally objective, of course. Okay, and, and everything is made from that kind of a place. It's not like that. The reality is, is that man does make a choice. And after he makes that first choice, many behaviors follow. What do I mean? Essentially, there is one critical choice that man makes. And I'm not saying that man can't change it with another choice. But man makes a choice. Where is my fulfillment coming from? Which world do I want to live in? Which world do I tick in? 
which world is the thing that is really nurturing my sense of existence here and my reason for being here. And there is a very positive realm and, so, and there are very negative and very compromising realms. And ultimately, man can make choices that seem to be very innocent, but they put him into a certain world. And once they're in that world, so there are things that naturally flow and almost compel me once I'm in that world. In this world, this is what people do. In this world, this is the way people talk. In this world, this is the way people act. In this world, this is the way people deal. And, and it's not even a conscious decision once you've, met, you've selected that that's the world in which you would like to live and thrive in and feel fulfilled in. And therefore, what King David is saying is fortunate is the person that has the wisdom that even before he does anything right and he does anything good, but he makes a very conscious decision, I'm not, I don't want to live in a world that's going to be feeding and bringing out of me not the ish things, not the, not the, the highest parts of what my humanity are about. Now, then King David continues and King David says, that ultimately, it's not suffice for a person to just go away from the negatives, but he must also do positives. He must find out how God expresses himself in this world, what is his will in this world, because all of those things have a tremendous richness and a tremendous goodness and a tremendous benefit for man. And the more and more that a person is involved in that, the better off he is. Now... One last point before we continue here. One last point in this, in this subject. The human being, the human being, listen to this carefully because it's a very interesting point and I'm trying to drive home one point here. The human being really is comprised of three major faculties. His thoughts, his actions, and his speech. These are his three major faculties. Another very famous commentary, the al says that if you look carefully in the first two verses of the first chapter of Psalms, you see that King David is addressing these faculties. What is King David saying? Ashrei ha'ish, lucky and fortunate is the person, ashalohalach, that he didn't allow himself to walk, ba'atzas rishayim, that he didn't allow himself to what? To become obsessed in negative thoughts. What is a chait? A person that does something without thinking. That's the world of action. That he pays attention to his power of creation through action as well. And he doesn't let it become involved in negativity. That he doesn't use his power of speech to sit down and to talk to people, idle talk and mockery and, and, and that which leads to the depreciation. So, what is the Alshech saying? The Alshech is saying a phenomenal idea. Very often a person strikes up some kind of a compromise with God. You know what the compromise is? God, I'll tell you what. I'll do everything you want me to do in the world of action, but don't tell me how to talk. Or better yet, God, I'll do everything you want me to do and I'll even talk respectfully like you want me to talk. But don't crick into my head. 
And don't, don't, don't go, don't stick your nose into my heart. Just as long as I don't do anything negative, my mind can be anywhere. It can be in a sewer, it can be wherever it wants to be. Okay? So King David is saying, no, you're not right. Because if the question of what the fortune of the human being would be is just in what he does and what he says, so then maybe you're right. You did the right things, you said the right things, so fine. But that's not the issue. The issue is which realm you've decided to live in. Where do you feel fulfilled? That has a lot to do where your thoughts are, where your emotions are, where your desires are, where your ultimate strivings are. And therefore, King David says, very interestingly, the fortune of the human being is when he doesn't make compromises with God and says to God, yeah, you can have my hands, but not my mind. Or you can have my mouth, but not my heart. King David says, no, it's not like that. In order for a person to really be making a selection that's not just robotic, but that is really a decision about my insides, he has to understand that God has to become a part of each faculty. The actions, the speech, and the thought. Now, interestingly enough, that's in the negative. Stay away of the negative in action, stay away of the negative in thought and in speech. Then King David flips it. And he says, but do positive. And when you do positive, you also have to do it in all three. You have to do positive actions. You have to do positive thinking. And you have to do positive speech. And that's the second verse that talks about learning Torah, which is with thought. Speaking Torah and communicating Torah knowledge with speech. And doing that which you learn that you have to do. So on both sides, what King David is saying is, you know where the man becomes fortunate when he stays away from negative, right? That, that, that doesn't work. This is what King David is saying. Now, with this explanation, we now understand the poetry of this psalm. King David goes ahead, and King David says like this, and then you will become like the tree that's by the body of water, that because it's so close to the body of water, it always gives its fruit in the right time. And the leaves protect its fruit and never dry up. And everything that comes forth from it is beautiful. Now, this is a phenomenal idea. I mean, King David was very poetic. But why did he compare the human being to a tree of fruit? You go over to any human being and you say to them, you know, I am so enthralled with you. You're like a peach tree. What is it supposed to mean? What is King David saying here? So I'll tell you what King David is saying here. What King David is saying over here is like this. What's the concept of a tree? The concept of a tree is that there are roots that lie hidden deep, deep beneath the soil. And depending upon the nature of those roots, and depending upon how much food and how much water those roots get, that will ultimately make the difference of what comes out 10, 20, 30, and even a hundred years later from that tree. So in other words, in other words, what is, what is the example of the tree? The example of the tree is showing that the hidden, the concealed roots of something is ultimately where it's at. And depending upon the health of where the roots are, that's what's going to determine the quality of the fruit that comes out very often many years later. So that's what King David is saying. King David opens up the first chapter of Psalms and he says, 
I can give you a whole speech about what it's right to do and what it's wrong to do and how you should become a robot of Judaism, but that's not what my issue is with you, King David says. My issue is that what Judaism means is that the person comes to wanting to place roots, that his roots are in Jewishness, that his roots are in a relationship with God. This is a subject of choosing where my roots are. Where are my roots? Right? Where, where do I want my roots? What, what will, will, will water my roots? What's going to give water to the roots of my life? Which water is going to give the roots? And that's why King David says if the person has chosen to stay away from polluted waters, the Atzas Rishoyim, the Derech Atoyim, the Moshev Leitzen, he decides, I don't want polluted waters. I'm not interested in that, but I want healthy roots. I want roots that are connected to God. So then King David opens up with the poetry and says, you know what you're going to be like? You're going to be like this tree that always gives its fruit in the right time. What does it mean, always gives its fruit in the right time? It's a phenomenal concept. A person has a tremendous amount of potential inside of him. A person should always want in life that his potential should reveal themselves when they were meant to. Because we're given a certain amount of time on this earth. And in that time on earth, we're supposed to be actualizing our potentials. So if a person has a tremendous richness of potential, okay, and he says, well, i got 70 years, so I'll wake up at 60. No. The human being was made in a way that he has potential inside of himself that can be actualized, that from the time that he reaches some kind of intellectual and spiritual maturity, he can already produce fruit. So if you wake up when you're 60 and you say, okay, it's, start, it's time to start actualizing. So from year 60 to year 70, maybe you even do peak production. You don't. After 60 years of doing nothing, you don't do peak production in the 60th year. But even if you could argue that you would do peak production, so you produce for 10 years. But what happened to the other 30, 40, 50 years and the fruit that could have been produced in those years? Every year has a crop. So King David says, it's not just enough for a person to say, okay, I wasted 30 years, but now I'm producing. Right? It's a darn shame because every year has its crop. Every year has its harvest. So King David says, if you select bad roots, so what happens is that the fruit doesn't come in its right time. The potentials that are really inside of you, they're not destroyed, but they come out so, so late. If any of you have children, and you should all be blessed to have children, you know that if the kid starts talking a month late, like you're going crazy already, you know, how come he's not talking yet? And how come? And usually the parents that worry the most about it, when they start talking, they don't stop. But, but there is a concern, okay? There is a concern, like in innocent places where it doesn't hurt us and it's not so painful to ourselves. Why aren't the fruits coming? It's already the time for them to come. So King David says, the, the first thing that I want you to know is that if you don't put the roots in the wrong place, the fruit will come in the right time. It won't take years for the first crop to come. Because if the roots are in the right place, the, the, the fruit will come. 
When fruit is delayed, it's because the roots are in the wrong place. It's working under a handicap that's deep underneath the soil. That's the first thing that he says. Then he continues and he says, that what the, the, the leaves that are not the essential but are a protector for the fruit, that will also remain healthy. You know, it's very important that we should have the things that we need to produce the pr- fruit that we need to produce. We need, a, we need a roof over our head. We need medical protection. We need this. We need that. We need many things. The fact that there's a lot of potential inside of us that can be actualized, that's not the whole story. In the process of these fruits coming out, we need a lot of things. We need protection, we need warmth, we need sunlight, we need a lot of things in order to make those things come out. The symbolism of the leaves is that everything that you need to protect, that the fruit doesn't get ruined in the process that it's growing, it'll be there. Why? Because if your roots are not in a polluted place, the stuff won't, won't, the, the stuff will be of a quality that it will be able to fend off the pesticides and the poisons that would seek to destroy the fruit. And then he continues and he says a third thing. And everything that you will do will be successful. Now in terms of a tree, I don't know what a tree does besides produce fruit that King David says, and everything that you, Mr. Tree, will do will be successful. What is that supposed to mean? Basically, what it means is like this. That you will be able to take from this tree, you will be able to prune from this tree and plant other trees, and those trees will continue the success of the original tree. Now, what does this mean in regards to the human being? It means something terribly, terribly precious to us. One of the major concerns that every one of us either has or will have in time is no matter what I am and no matter how much quality I choose for myself in my life, do I have any guarantee that my children will choose that path as well? I want them to choose it not just because I'm a mama and I want to force it down their throats. I want them to have it because I know that that's where beauty and truth is. And if I love my children, I want them to have it. But is there any guarantee that a parent can have that the child will follow that path? No. It's a free world. We live in a democratic society. And people have, you know, there's, you know, you're not a minor anymore and you can make your own choices and you're an adult and all of the rest of it. And after everything is said and done, you can't build a person by taking away their free will. They have to come to make their choices with free will. So we're in a bit tremendous paradox. I invest my whole life and I hope that the values and the beauty that I have found in life, my children should continue with absolutely no way of ensuring that it's going to happen because they are separate human beings with their own free will and what can I do to guarantee it? So King David says, no. If the roots of the tree are healthy... You prune a piece of the tree and you plant it somewhere else and you'll also get another healthy tree. In other words, it's very conceivable that a person, as a parent, will do all the right things, stay away from the wrong things, but in their heart, in their their head, they're in polluted places, they're in negative places. They really, they're really, they're really, they, in other words, 
I'm Jew by birth. I'm Jew by birth, and, and therefore I have things to, to live within, but really my heart is, 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 is not in Judaism. And my deepest yearnings and how I yearn for the things that I yearn for are not Jewishly. So King David says, you want to know where the difference of the quality of the roots are going to show up? They're going to show up in your children. Because children reveal not only the behaviors of their parents, but more than that, they reveal the roots of the parents. In other words, whatever is hidden deep, deep in the root of the parent, that's what becomes invested in a child. And sometimes if we don't even know ourselves so well, let's look at our children and they'll teach us something about ourselves. We think that they learn everything from us, but on a certain level, there's a lot about ourselves that we can learn from our children. Because what's in us, deep under the soil, in the roots of our own being, the things that we strive for and don't know, the things that we strive for and do know and have suppressed, the things that we hold on to and tell God, mind your own business, I can think and feel what I want. You just get, you'll just throw the book at me for the things that I do wrong if I do them wrong. All of that is all fine and nice until you bring kids into the world. But when you bring kids into the world, they reveal the roots. They show the roots. And that's why he's saying this. Since this subject is a subject not just of, of, of selecting good actions, but selecting fulfillment, which comes from healthy roots, so King David says, the best example that I can give to you is that you're like this tree that depending upon the roots being near good water, the fruit will come in its right time and everything necessary to protect the fruit will be there. Don't worry that if you're going to make spiritual choices, the things that you need to protect won't be there for you. They'll be there for you. And the greatest gift of all is that some level of assurance you will have that that which you invested and killed yourself for in life, which most people on some level do for their children, that there will be some kind of continuity to what my values are to the children. There's an interesting story that's told in the Talmud about an individual that was traveling through a very, a, a very dry, dusty place with no food and water in sight and he was literally ready to pass out. And then he comes upon this oasis and he finds there, he finds there a beautiful tree and there's luscious fruit on the tree and the tree has lots of shade. So he immediately drinks from the water, eats from the fruit, lies under the shade of the tree and cools off and revives himself. And then after he packs his bags, okay, and he's ready to travel on, he turns to the tree and he says, tree, what can I, what can, what can I, how can I bless you? Should I bless you that you should have beautiful fruits? You have beautiful fruits. Should I bless you that you should that uh, that you should have healthy waters feeding you? You have healthy waters that are feeding you. Should I bless you that you should be have give lots of shade and coolness and pleasure to people? You already have it. How can I bless you, tree, for what you've done for me? The only way that I can bless you is Yehiratz and it should be the will of God that all trees that are pruned from you and planted from you should be like you. So too, the Medrash says, so too the Medrash says that this really personifies and this really symbolizes the depth of the human concern that the values that they have, that the deepest bracha that can be given 
is that there should be a continuity in generations and that it shouldn't be lost and it shouldn't be cut off in generations. And then King David ends off and he says, since the issue is the roots that are under the soil, so King David says, the value of the roots that are under the soil can sometimes take hundreds of years until you really appreciate what they're about. How about the wicked people? No, the wicked people ride high. The moats, the chaff of the harvest, the chaff of the, of the crop, usually lies on the very top of the grains. And as long as it's not knocked off and separated, it looks like it's on the top of the world. It looks like it's really connected. However, with time what happens is the stuff is cut and then there's a threshing and a separating process and then that which appeared all the time to, so to speak, be on the top of the hill, that gets thrown away and that, gets, and that, and that flies away and it becomes so vulnerable. It's a very interesting thing. What does King David say? We finished in a minute here. But what does King David say? He says a fascinating thing. The, wicked way, the way of the wicked, which now we know doesn't just mean wicked actions, but it means looking for fulfillment in a negative realm. So King David says, you know what, the, what is? He's like chaff. That as long as he's connected to the harvest, he looks like he's really with it. But the day that, it's, that things are harvested and an accounting has to be taken, it's separated. It's not connected anymore. And not only isn't it connected but it's the thing that blows in the wind. And wherever the wind takes it, that's where it goes. It doesn't have any character of its own. It doesn't have any backbone of its own. And it, it bends and it swings and it disappears in the winds. And what King David is saying is that sometimes we don't have the patience to appreciate concealed roots and the stuff that we have to do to feed the concealed roots. But King David says, any normal person knows that if the roots are good, the thing that will come up out of the ground will be able to withstand all winds. It will be able to withstand all pressures. It will be able to withstand everything that would seek to bend and break the tree. And that's what King David is saying here. As a final push, King David is saying over here, understand that the issue that I'm talking to you about is not an issue of how to act right but how to choose the inside, that the inside, that the roots should be healthy roots, that your nourishment, your sense of fulfillment should come from a healthy place. And King David puts one last pitch in over here. And King David says, and you know what the biggest value is? That there's some kind of permanence to that existence. There's some kind of eternity to it. It doesn't bend and swing in the wind and break in the wind, in the winds of the world. And deep, deep down, every human being needs, has a need for that. No human being wants to be described by the poet as the chaff that blows in whatever direction and in whatever whirlwind that the wind takes it in. No human being wants to be vulnerable and subject to that kind of a life. It is extremely tormenting and it's the antithesis of the peace that a human being is looking for. So King David is saying, you're looking for peace don't only make external choices. You have to make internal choices. Right? And ultimately, those things are concealed. You can feel fool the whole world about your internal choices. But in the end, you're only fooling yourself. Because if in the internal choices you're playing games, in the end there's no eternity to it, there's no peace to it, 
and the fruit and the children and everything that you would like to see won't be there. Those things won't be there. King David then says, and this is the final thing and I'll really keep quiet after that. King David then says, and you have to understand something else. The person that makes a decision of, of wanting to plant healthy roots, he's not in it alone. There's a God that's planting with him. Ki Hashem derech tzadikim. God knows the ways of the tzaddik. What does it mean he knows the ways of the tzaddik? We know in the Hebrew language that the word know means to be connected. When, when Adam knew his wife, when Adam became one sexually with his wife, the Torah says, and Adam knew his wife. So what does that mean? So the commentaries say that the highest and deepest bonds between man and his fellow man, or in the man-woman relationship, the husband-wife relationship, is where the oneness comes through a deep understanding of the other person. So King David says over here, because Hashem knows the, the, the work that goes into the path of, of, of the tzaddik. What does it mean he knows? He's connected to it. He says, oh, this person is planting roots. He's planting roots. He's planting healthy roots. He wants it to be near pure water. He wants it to be near healthy water. I will become a partner in planting those roots. The other person that's planting superficial roots what doesn't need any roots at all but just skips around from day to day and what he can pick off from a superficial connection to this world, he's on his own. That's a choice that he's made. On a deep level, he said, to, he said God, mix out of my, my internal life. Which basically means, God, my roots in life are my business, not yours. God is not pushy. If a person says to God, the roots that I want in this world from which will emanate my sense of fulfillment is my business, not yours, God. So God says, listen, if that's your choice, I got in tug. Have a good day. If you ever change your mind, I will always come back. But the tzaddik is, is willing to put deep roots. D- very, very deep roots. So God says, I'm connected to those. So King David says it stands to reason that if you have a, a partner in setting up the roots, that down the road you have much, a much more secure crop to harvest. While if you don't have a partner in the planting, it's questionable if there'll be what to harvest. This is basically what King David is saying over here. And you can, you can interpret it on many, many different levels. Okay? But the deepest level of what King David is, is communicating to us over here is that in order to really be able... You know, last week we were talking about being able to rise above God's patch and being able to sing to God even after getting a patch. Why can a person sing to God even after getting a patch? Because his roots are a lot deeper. And when there are deep roots the patch is not going to stop my singing. But that's only if there are roots. And it's only if the roots are in the right places. But if there are no roots, that patch is the wind that blows the chaff. And that's what King David is saying. If you want to know what the, 
the, the, the stamina and the resistance and the strength of being able to sing after a patch. It's because there was an investment of roots, and if there are roots, a patch is a patch, but the roots stay the same roots, and they produce the same fruit. Okay, I'll stop here, and I'll gladly take questions if there are. I'm also not insulted if you all go home, or if only some of you go home. If you all go home, then I can go home. Yes. Okay, it's not a subject for this evening. We will talk about it in later psalms. I don't want to get into it right now. It's a very complicated issue. Very complicated issue. King David, let me just say one word for you. King David is not saying, I've arrived. But King David is saying, I know where it's at. And that's what King David is saying. Yes. I see everybody's taking me seriously. It's wonderful. I hope you listen to everything else as well. Yeah. Look at that. I didn't see the movie. Which one? What? That what? The rabbi addressed the very same question, where do you place your roots? Uh-huh. Okay. Baruch Hashem, I was machavin to Woody Allen. <laughs> From here, it's straight into showbiz. <laughs> I think everybody's in the mood of refreshments, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs>